Matthew chapter number 14 tonight. Matthew chapter number 14. I'd like to begin reading in verse 13. Matthew chapter 14, verse number 13. We'll read down to verse number 21. The Word of God says that when Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. When it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a desert place, and the time is now past. Send the multitude away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals. But Jesus said unto them, They need not depart, give ye them to eat. And they said unto him, We have here but five loaves and two fishes. He said, Bring them hither to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass and took the five loaves and the two fishes. Looking up to heaven, he blessed and brake and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they did eat, all eat, and were filled. And they took up of the fragments that remained twelve baskets full. And they that had eaten were about five thousand men beside women and children. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for your word. I pray that you would use it in our hearts and in our minds. May this not just be... A, a service that because maybe our, our bodies are weary, maybe our minds are, are taxed, Lord, it's the middle of the week, we have many responsibilities, and it'd be easy for those responsibilities to become distractions in this moment. But Lord, I pray that that's not what would happen, that we'd train our hearts and minds upon you and that we would not just gloss over this service, but Lord, that this would be a time when you do a real and meaningful work in our hearts and minds. We know that we must do our part in being attentive and receiving uh, with meekness the engrafted word. Lord, help us to do that tonight. We'll be sure to thank you for what transpires. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, in Matthew chapter 14, we have an account of what we commonly call the feeding of the 5,000. This is probably one of the more familiar miracles to the average church member. But most of the time when we preach on it, we're preaching out of John chapter number 6. Let me say, man, I love to preach out of John chapter 6 on this very uh, this very story, this very event that took place in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I've drawn our attention tonight to uh, Matthew's account because there's a phrase that the Lord Jesus uses in verse number 16. Now remember, they, they've just heard of, of uh, you know, uh, the, the death of John the Baptist. When Jesus hears it, he departs, he goes into a desert place. Multitudes of people, when they hear that he is is there, they leave their uh, homes, they leave the cities, the villages they dwell in, they go out and they follow the Lord Jesus. And uh, John's account tells us that for three days they followed him out there, that by the time they reach the point that we're at here in our text, they are weary. In fact, they are too weary to go back home. And so the disciples give some very, very reasonable, practical advice. They go to the Lord Jesus and say, listen, these people need to get something to eat. Why don't you let them go out to these villages and find something to eat? Buy, and I like this good King James Bible word, buy victuals. And uh, you say, preacher, uh, what, what is a victual? Well, it's more than a snack and less than supper. Amen. So you know, let them go out and, and, and get something to eat and uh, so that they do not grow weary. And the choice was very clear before them. Here they are being spiritually fed by the Lord Jesus. Here they are seeing Christ do amazing works in their life. But now they have a need of the flesh. And I don't mean to say that it is wrong that they were hungry, but I mean this is they've been being spiritually ministered to, spiritually fed, but now they need physical food. And those two things have been have been juxtaposed, have been put in, in contradiction of each other, and now they have a choice. They must choose what they are going to do. 
The disciples say, why don't you send them away and let them uh, buy victuals? But the Lord Jesus in verse 16 says this, They need not depart, give ye them to eat. That phrase, they need not depart. I don't know if this ever happens to you, but I was reading my Bible and that jumped out of the page and smacked me right in the mouth. They need not depart. And I began to think of what that means in the context of our passage. Uh, for instance, what were they departing from? Anytime you leave, anytime you travel, you got something you're going away from and something you're going towards. You have a, a an origin and you have a destination. I, I thought to myself, we know what they're going towards. They're going to physical sustenance. But what would they have been departing from? And three things struck in my mind. One, they would be departing from following him. They had spent three days out in the wilderness and where he was dictated where they were. They had been following in lockstep. If he got up and moved, traveled a mile or two, then the whole crowd, thousands of people would get up and they would crowd around him and they would follow him closely. They did not want to lose him. Uh, they did not want to have a distance between them and they did not want to get to the place where they could not hear him. So they are following him closely. But now they feel as though they are placed in a position where they have to decide whether their need is going to be met or whether they're going to keep following him. Can I say that we often, as child, uh, children of God, we allow this same dichotomy, this same dilemma to be presented in our life. The devil will come along and will uh, present to you great needs in your life or maybe great desires in your life. And he'll frame it this way. You can either have God or you can have this. And make us feel as though we must choose between a great need that must be met or between following him. I can't tell you the numbers of people that I have seen lead their families into uh, destruction and into spiritual decline because they had to take that job that was going to keep them out of church. Preacher, I, preacher I've got to. I, I can't help it. I, you know, I've got bills to pay. I've got to do it. Uh, there's been people, sadly, have used the excuse at times to destroy marriages where they say, because I feel as though this need or that need is not being met, I have no choice. I have to do this. I have to destroy my home. I've seen a myriad of situations. People, uh, churches compromise, preachers compromise. They say, well, if we're going to get young people in, then, then, you know, I mean, we've just, we've got to yield to these things that are carnal, that are worldly in philosophy and, 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 and in spirit. And the devil will place you in a scenario where you feel like you must choose between following the Lord or having that need met in your life. They were asked, uh, to, uh, leave him to, uh, quit following him. And let me say that uh, we are never placed in a position where we can't follow the Lord. It may cost us some things we don't need, or it may prompt the Lord to do some things for some things we do need that we struggle to trust Him for. But at the end of the day, we always have the option to do right. We can always follow the Lord. They were trying to choose whether they would depart from following Him. Number two, they would have been departing not only from following Him, letting Him plot the course of their steps going in the direction that he desired. But the reason they were following him is they wanted fellowship with him. They wanted to be where he was. They wanted to see his miracles. They wanted to hear his voice and his teaching. They wanted him to transform their lives and to change their lives. And I would say that very often in our lives, we feel as though we must make a choice between something that the devil has cast as a need in our life and fellowship with the Lord. I want to be abundantly clear with you tonight. I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm glad that my standing in Christ Jesus, who I am in Christ, the position that I'm in, I'm justified by faith in the finished work of Christ on Calvary. There's nothing I could do to get unsaved because there ain't nothing I did to save me in the first place. 
I just came to Him and allowed Him to save me. It was a choice that I made to place my faith in Him. I wasn't predestined to make that choice. But I didn't do anything to procure my salvation. I didn't earn it. I, I didn't do anything to purchase it. It wasn't purchased by promises on my part to be good and do good and always stay close to Him. But it was based upon His promise that if I would come and place my faith in Christ, He would forgive me and pardon me and save me and change my life. It was based upon Him and not me. But I could also say the other side of that coin is this, that while my standing in Christ is not going to be affected by anything that I do, not even hell itself could shake that truth, it is equally true that, that my closeness to Him, my fellowship with Him, we could use the term relationship in a, in a familial way, in a close, in an intimate way. That absolutely can be affected. In other words, I can be a saved child of God, but not walk in close fellowship with the Lord. And now they feel like they're being put in a position where they've got to choose. You're either going to be close to Christ or you're going to have this need met. Again, very often the devil will cast this in our life. And, and often he will take things that are temptations, that are sins, and make us think that they are imperative to our everyday life. Every single addict walking the street thinks they can't live without whatever it is they're addicted to. And there's more addictions than just those that are chemical. There's addictions of the soul. There's addictions of the mind. There's addictions of the spirit. And the flesh will always buy the line that it cannot live without that sin. And so very often we'll look at it and when we're faced with temptation, we'll say, well, I've got to choose. I know this is going to hurt my relationship with the Lord, but I need this thing. And we will be told that we have to depart from him. Then I thought of a third thing. Now, here they've been walking in the wilderness. It is apparent if they had brought any food, they've already eat all that food up. And they reached a point as they were traveling where they realized, here we are out here. We ain't seen a McDonald's in 60 miles. And, and, and we've got to make a choice here whether we're going to keep following or whether we're going to turn back. But evidently, those people made this choice. They said, if he can heal the eyes of the blind, if he can raise the dead, if he can, if he can put together broken limbs, if he can do these things, then he can feed us. And they kept following him. I would say it this way. They had placed their faith in him. They were trusting him to meet those needs. And now here are the disciples, and they're doubting the Lord, and they're saying, now, Lord, this is a vast crowd. I know that the Bible says 5,000, but it's 5,000 men that the Bible says, not counting women and children. I mean, listen, conservative estimates could put this northward of 20,000 people that could have been on that hillside, and there's potential for it to have been many, many more. And the disciples, I mean, they're, they're looking at that vast crowd, and they're saying there's no way that the Lord can do this. That crowd had been trusting him. But the disciples, their faith had begun to waver. And now they believe they're placed in a position where they've got to depart from faith in him. I'm going to tell you something. This is the reality of the Christian experience. Are you ready? Listen, uh, very often you are going to be placed in situations where if God doesn't intervene, there is no solution. The Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. Now, it's funny, and, I, and I'm preaching to my own flesh when I say this. It's funny how clear the Bible is on that matter, and yet how often we struggle with it. Somehow, when we are placed in a scenario where we must trust God, we get the feeling as though God has messed up. And yet he's told us clearly that this thing of Christianity is a matter of trusting him by faith. The Christian life, the Christian experience, if we want to use that terminology, I'm not just talking about when you got born again, but I'm talking about living like a Christian is going to compel you to be in scenarios where you're going to have to trust God, where there is no clear solution. They've been doing this, and the disciples were only admitting what anybody else could obviously see, which is that, humanly speaking, there was no solution. 
And they were saying, we need to quit trusting that he can feed this crowd and we need to just send them on their way. And they were being asked to depart from trusting him, from faith in him. And how often in our life when we, and, and I want to be clear with how I say this, I don't mean being cavalier with our life. God gave us common sense. It's not very common, but we call it common sense. God gave us the capacity to use rational logic and reason. And, and those things are not the enemy of God or of God's word. God is not calling us to a reckless life. But when we have clear direction that we're doing the will of God, we know, I know this is the will of God. God's revealed that to me. The word of God has either explicitly told me or the spirit of God has impressed this on my heart in concert with the truth of the word of God. And we know we're doing the will of God. Then we ought to trust God to meet the needs in our life, irrespective of whether there's a human solution or not. But we'll often be placed in a situation where, I, just to, to put it simply, we get in a game of chicken with our flesh. Where it's, who's going to blink first, the old man or the new man? Who are we going to trust? What are we going to do? And sometimes, in fact, I would say very often, because this is how faith grows. It is a muscle. It is exercised. It, 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 is, it is strengthened. It is, it is built up. Very often we will be placed in a scenario where it's going to be uncomfortable and difficult to trust God with whatever the matter is that we're facing. We live in a world today that that is so regimented in its in its systems that we anticipate there to always be a plan B, for there to always be a solution, for there to always be a process to resolve whatever it is we're facing. But I got news for you. If there's anything we've learned in the past few years, it's that there are some things that only God controls. And we're going to have to trust God. Now, let me tell you, if you're a child of God, you can trust God. He's a trustworthy God. And don't think that just because God puts you in scenarios where you say, well, preacher, if I don't do this, then what hope do I have? What help do I have? Well, I'll tell you what hope you have. Your hope is in the Lord. You can trust Him. I'll tell you what help you've got. Your help cometh from, from above. Your help cometh from the Lord. Look to the hills from whence your help cometh. He's your helper. He's the one that does those things. And He always has been. But somehow secular society has conditioned us to believe that we can only trust God when God works within the processes that we have sanctioned. Only if God will do it in the way that we anticipate. And only if God will print His whole plan out and run it by us for our signature and initials are we to trust Him. I'm sorry, that's not the truth of Christianity. There's going to be times that God ain't going to let you in on what He's doing. And you're just going to have to trust that He's God and He's in control. In other words, they were asked to depart from faith in Him. Now, what would their choice be? Well, I love what the Lord says. He says they need not depart. Every time we make the choice to walk away from from faithfulness to the Lord and from walking with Him, we have always conditioned ourselves to believe and convinced ourselves that we had no other choice. It's a way that we go to sleep at night knowing we made a wrong decision. We always tell ourselves, well, I had no choice. No, that's not true. You always have a choice to do right. And the Lord puts that in stark relief here. They need not depart. Many of them might, but it's not because they had to. It's because they chose to. They need not depart. Now, what does this passage tell us about this thought, this idea? Well, I want you to notice three things and we'll be done tonight. Notice first off, verses 13 and 14 provide us sort of a framework to understand this passage. It says, when Jesus heard of it, speaking of the death of John the Baptist, he departed thence by ship into a desert place. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. I jotted it down this way in my notes. Notice first off what they had tasted. 
You remember what the psalmist said, Psalms 34, 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. I mean, these were a people that had experienced some things since they started following Jesus out into the wilderness. How many of you would say, Preacher, I have seen some things since God saved my soul. I've seen God do some incredible things in my life that I never anticipated I would ever get to see. Has God proven himself to you? Has he shown that he's faithful? Has he shown that he's powerful? What did they experience? Well, verse 13 reminds us that they had experienced the pursuit of the Savior. It says, when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. Now they're being tempted to go back into the cities. But there was a time living in those cities just three days past when they had full bellies, when they had warm hearths, when they had uh, shelter from the cold and shelter from the, the elements. There was a time when they said, Jesus is worth more than this security. I'm willing to step out from this and go and follow him because he has something that I need more than these things. I'd say this to you tonight. There was, If you're saved, there was a time in your life when you threw uh, worldly caution to the wind and said, this world has nothing for me. I'm going to Christ and I'm going to let him save me. There was a moment when you decided he was enough. So how do you know that, preacher? If you're saved, there was a moment when you decided that. When you decided that you didn't need religion in a, in a conventional sense, in a, in a human-centric sense, a, a time when, when you said, I, I don't know what's going to happen, but he promised me in his word he'd save me. If I came to him, a, a moment when you said, I don't need the glitter and glamour of the world. I don't need the pleasures of sin. What I want is peace. And Christ offers it. And you made the decision to leave all those things and to go out and follow him. So can I ask you this question? Who has changed in the meantime? He's not changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So at one time, he was enough that you were willing to trust him with your eternal soul, your eternal destiny. You were willing to look at it and say, I don't know, I can't, I can't uh, uh, you know, affirm anything to be true, but, but the Bible says that I'm in danger of dying in my sins and going to hell. And God stirred my soul and showed me that that's true for me. And I'm willing to trust Him with my eternity by putting my faith in Jesus Christ. At one time, He was enough for you. And He has not changed. So when we get to that place where we say, well now, you know, preacher, I don't know if I can keep following the Lord the way that I used to, faithful to church, read my Bible, keep living for the Lord, serving in ministry. I don't know, preacher, if I can maintain this close walk to the world. I mean, I, I owe to the Lord. I hear the siren song of what sin is telling me. Preacher, I don't know if I can keep trusting God. I mean, I'm right up against the wire and, and I gotta have some kind of, some kind of answer. When those moments come, just remember, there was a time when you had nothing but faith. You came to Christ, you followed Him, and in following Him you found fellowship with Him, and you got up off of the altar of His grace and said, He is enough. I think about how they had experienced the pursuit of the Savior. Notice verse 14. says this, And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them. They had experienced the pity of the Savior. They had learned when they came to Him that He loved them, that He cared about them. I love the way the Bible says it here that he was moved with compassion toward them. This was not an academic love or pity or compassion. This was a, a, an effectual compassion. He was moved. It literally moved the heart of God when he saw them. And what they had learned was it, when they came to him, they were coming to one that loved them more than anyone else in the entire world. 
If you've been saved by the grace of God, you know what you found out when you came to him? You found out he loves you. He loves you so much that he gave his son to die on the cross of Calvary. And you found out that he loved you, that even in your brokenness, he would save you and receive you unto himself. You found out that he cares more about you than anyone in the world does. You found that there's no one else that loves you like he loves you. There's no one ever cared for you like Jesus. And they learned that when they went out on that hillside. And then look at the end of verse 14. I like this. It says, and he healed their sick. So here's what they'd experienced. They'd experienced the pursuit of the Savior. And I just remind you, there was a time when you decided Jesus was enough. That you didn't need baptism or, or sacraments or, or, or charitable giving. That you didn't need the sanction of, of mankind to somehow authenticate and, and certify your standing with God. You made a decision that you didn't need a pursuit of making your life all about how big of a bank account you could get or how nice of a home that you could build. You decided that Jesus was enough. You've experienced what it is to go to Christ, to, to cast everything off and say, I want Jesus no matter what it costs me. They'd experienced the pity of the Savior. They'd learned when they came to Him that He loved them. Not just in, in, in that academic sense. I mean, it's easy to tell somebody you love them. But He showed them that He loved them. And the Lord has showed us that He loves us. He showed us through Calvary that He loves us. Not only that, they had experienced the power of the Savior. Uh, they, had, they had seen Him take those miraculous divine hands and, and bind up brokenness that doctors couldn't heal, uh, that medicine men could not touch, bind up things that, that were beyond the scope of human beings to, to touch and to change. I mean, things, blinded eyes that have been blind since birth. I mean, people that have been dead for, for multitudes of days and He had raised them from the dead. They had seen that He was powerful. They had seen Him work in their lives and the lives of others. There were people in that crowd that were walking that weren't walking when they started out after Jesus. There were people that could see, that couldn't see when they stumbled out of a city in the darkness of their infirmity and followed His voice. There were people there, no doubt, that had loved ones that, that had, been, had been gripped by death's power that now were back whole with them again. They had seen the power of God. And I would say if you've been saved by God's grace, you've seen the power of God in your life. I can say that without any hesitation because when He saved you, it was the most powerful thing He could ever do in your life. He dealt, he dealt with a problem so big that it took the death of God to address it. But He did that in your life. But probably it's true for you, and I know it's true for me, that I've seen God work in a thousand, a million ways since then. I've seen Him answer prayers that, that were impossible with men. And I learned that nothing's impossible with God. I saw him work in people's lives that I thought there's no way. There's no way they'll hear. There's no way they'll heed. And yet God softened their hearts. I've seen God do incredible, amazing things in people's lives. And I've got to say, I mean, listen, I'll just raise my hand in testimony tonight that I know God's real. I know he loves humanity. I know that he's powerful. And I know he's interested in the affairs of human beings. I can bear personal eyewitness testimony to every one of those truths. Because he's proved it in my life. I see what they had tasted. But the Bible says in verse 15, that something came along, something changed, something disrupted uh, their experience of walking with the Lord. It says in verse 15, when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a desert place. That's when you insert the term Captain Obvious there, right? This is a desert place. I hope somebody, I don't know which one of them said it, might have been Philip. I know Philip's spoken of and dropped, but I hope somebody looked at him like he was stupid when he said it. Amen. This is a desert place, and the time is now past. Send the multitude away 
that they may go into the villages and buy them victuals. So the first thing I see is what they had tasted. They had tasted and seen that the Lord was good. But then number two, I see how they were tempted. Here they've been following the Lord. They've been seeing Him do great, amazing things in their life. But as they traveled, the flesh began to, to gnaw at them. Their stomachs began to, to gnaw at them. And, and, and the more miles they traveled, the more, the more powerful that, that intrusion of the flesh's desire became in them. And probably there were grumbling mouths and, and groaning stomachs all throughout that crowd of people. And so the disciples come to, to broker a, a, a solution. They come to the Lord to say, hey, enough's enough. Let's just send them. Away, And I thought, what were the reasons that they said that? There are three things here, and I want you to notice them, because these are the words they use. Notice, number one, they were tempted because of the desert place they were in. As I said a moment ago, it's, it's one of those statements when he says, this is a desert place. It sounds almost foolish to say, because undoubtedly everyone there knew that. But you see, therein lies the significance. He was emphasizing, we ain't just anywhere here. We're in a wilderness. We are in a desert place. And here's what he was saying. There is no help beyond the help that they can find in these villages. What a shocking thing. Not a one of them came and said, Lord, these people are hungry. Feed them. Instead, they come and say, Lord, these people are hungry. And obviously, there's nothing you can do for them. So I guess we better send them away. You know, often we're tempted to, to decline in our closeness to the Lord, to, to stray in our following of Him and our fellowship with Him because we find ourselves in desert places. Faith is built for desert places, not for green, lush oases. It's built for places where there is no human possibility, no rational answer provided. When they looked across that waste-howling wilderness, they didn't see any fruit trees. They didn't see any, any places they could forage. They didn't see any game to be found. They looked around and said, there's nothing we can do. Can I just remind you of something tonight? Just because there's nothing you can do, that doesn't mean there's nothing God can do. <laughs> I feel like the simplicity of that statement betrays its, its, its profundity. Listen, just because there's nothing you can do, that doesn't mean there's nothing God can do. In fact, I would find very often in my experience, and you probably would too, that the greatest things that God does are things He does when there is nothing we can do. Desert places are not places God shies away from them. He created them. He's not scared of the desert place. The Lord Jesus spent a lot of his time in the desert place. He's not scared of it. God's not scared to go through a desert place. Why is that? Well, because he's the bread of life. He's the living water. <laughs> he's the manna from heaven. He, he's the all-sufficient source of, of all-sufficient things. He can provide anything he needs to. Why would he be scared to go out into a desert? So in other words, they come and, and they're nervous because they're in a place they can't provide for themselves. And very often when we find ourselves in scenarios where we say, well, well, preacher, there's nothing I can do if I stay in this situation. That's no reason to cut bait and run from God. That's the reason to double down and stay close to it. I love when the little boy, and he's not really featured much in Matthew's account. Uh, he's sort of, I guess, there implicitly because we know the other gospel accounts. When he comes in and gives that meal, one of the things I've loved, the, the Bible says in John's account that, that he came. Why would he give that one meal? Who, who was he giving that to? I don't think that little boy knew that Jesus was going to take the bread and fishes and break them and distribute them to 5,000 people. I, I don't think he knew that. So why did he come and offer this meal to the Lord. Here's what he said in his mind. He said, "Shouldn't if anybody's going to go hungry today, it shouldn't be Jesus. 
Can I remind you that before that bread was broken, the only person that had any food on that hillside was Jesus? Why would you run from the only person that has the means to meet your need? You're running to a place that cannot meet your need, and you're running from the only one that can meet your need. In other words, he had what it took. We say, well, preacher, I'm in a desert place. I, I, I don't know what the answer is. That's okay. You don't always have to know. God always does. Not only that, the Bible says this, the time is now past. That's an interesting statement. If I'm to be honest, it's a little bit of a presumptuous statement. I mean, who is the disciple to tell Jesus that the time is now past? But what he's saying is, already some of these people ain't going to make it to the villages. The time is ticking away. The same way that whenever Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus and Lazarus' sister comes up and says, you know, it's too late. He's been in there four days. And Christ's answer is very simple. You know, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though we were dead, yet shall he live, believest thou this. Do you believe me or don't you believe me? If you believe I am who I've said I am, then time has no bearing upon me. But how often do we in that sort of game of chicken with our flesh blink because we say, well... Time's getting short. If God's going to do something, I sure wish He would have already done it. Can I? And, and I don't mean to burst your bubble, and I certainly don't mean to discourage you, but I want to be biblically honest with you. If Jesus would allow two women to grieve for four days over the loss of their brother before He showed up and, and raised Him from the dead, it is not beyond God to grow and develop us through allowing us to be in a scenario where it seems like time has run out. You're going to find yourself in situations where you say, well, preacher, you don't understand. i got to do something now. And I know it means getting out of church. And I, I know that it means uh, walking away from the Lord. And I know that it means leading my family in the wrong direction. But preacher, time is running out. That's because you view it as your time. If you viewed it as God's timetable, you'd recognize immediately that God never runs out of time because he's not inside of time. They were tempted because of not only the desert, but because of the delay. He said, Lord, why haven't you done anything yet? Man, I'd be, a, I'd be a wealthy man if I had a nickel for every time that I've said, Lord, why haven't you done anything yet? Often that is one of the greatest foes to our faith is a, is a, a, a ticking watch, a ticking clock. We say, Lord, why haven't you done it yet? But then there's a third reason. Look what he says. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals. There's a lot we don't know, and I don't want to presume things into the word of God. But it's apparent that they are close enough to these villages that they are aware that those villages are there. They can see them and, and they know that there's places that these people can go. And I can easily imagine in my mind as they have traveled following Jesus and their stomachs are, are rumbling and grumbling and, and they can smell the, the cook smoke coming off of some of these little hamlets and, and houses and, and maybe they can smell something roasting over an open fire and, and their flesh is all of a sudden ignited in that and, and engaged in that and, and all of a sudden what at one time didn't seem like a very great hunger now all of a sudden does. Let's be 100% honest here. They were tempted not only because of the desert and the delay, but they were tempted because of their desires. There was a part of them that wanted to turn around, walk away, and go seek physical provision. I don't want to be too judgmental of these folks. It's not wrong to eat. Uh, let me say, it's not wrong to eat. In case you did not hear, it is not wrong to eat. Probably wrong to eat the way I eat sometimes, but it's not wrong. But you see, anything that takes us away from the Lord is wrong. Even if intrinsically it's not wrong. 
even if inherently it's not wrong. If it takes us away from the Lord, it's wrong in our life. They had a desire. That desire was not nefarious in nature, but it became something that to their mind was mutually exclusive of a walk with the Lord. And anything in our life that the devil uses to try to make us choose between God and it, always choose God. Don't ever choose it, whatever it is. So I see how they were tempted, but then I see what they were taught. I want you to notice this and I'll be done. Verse 16, I love this. What was the answer? I mean, the disciples come and they said, now we got a choice, Lord. They've got to go. They've got to get something to eat. They're going to perish out here. And I love what Jesus says. You say they need to leave, but I don't think they do. He says they need not depart. In that statement, what did he convey to them? What were not only uh, how were they tempted, but what were they taught through this experience? Well, notice verse 16. Jesus said unto them, they need not depart. And then a remarkable statement. He looks at the disciple and he says, give ye them to eat. John's account says that he knew that they could not do that. And, and you don't have to be a savant to know that. I mean, how could they? but that he said that to test them. He said that to try them. He said that to remind them that they were speaking humanly and forgetting that he is God. And so he says to them, give you them to eat. Now, if you're the disciple, that has a significance. But imagine you're one of the people that's standing around. And you're weighing back and forth. I can almost see in my mind a, a, a family standing there and the wife saying, now, honey, what are we going to do? The, the kids are hungry and, and, and I'm hungry and on, on the border of hangry, amen? And, I, and I, what are we going to do? And the husband's sweating and, and trying to think, what, I've got to provide for my family. It's my responsibility. And then all of a sudden, he hears the disciples talking. And he hears Philip or whoever it may have been come to the Lord and say, now listen, we've got to send these people away. They've got to go get something to eat. They can't stay here. And he's thinking, well, maybe that's what the plan's going to be, honey. Hold on a second. We're, I think we're about to pack up, something, find the kids' shoes and put them back on. We're, we're getting ready to leave. We're going to go find something to eat. But then he hears the voice of the Savior. And the Lord says, they need not depart. Give ye them to eat. And you can imagine for a moment he stops them and says, now wait a minute. The Savior says there's a way we can stay right here close to him and still have that need met. You know what they learned? They learned his willingness to meet our needs. He has a desire to be for us all that we need. <laughs> he says to Philip, give you them to eat. And although to him that means one thing, that's meant to, to signify his, his impotence in providing for this need. But to the people standing around, what they would have heard is Jesus has a plan and he wants to meet our need. We need to be reminded that God has a desire to meet every legitimate and Christ-honoring need that we have in our life. Now, that don't mean that you can name every desire and need and then blame God when it's not met. But it does mean that when we have a need, we can trust Him to discern between in our life what is a need and what is not. And if it is a need, we can be assured He'll meet it. He meets all of our needs. They learned His willingness to meet our needs. Look at verse 17. It says, They say unto Him, We have here but five loaves and two fishes. He said, bring them hither to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass and took the five loaves and the two fishes. Looking up to heaven, he blessed and break and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. You can, you can picture in your mind in a vast crowd this large that as they're watching this transpire, they can't see everything that's taking place. Maybe those that are closest, but even those closest would have been crowded out by the disciples Probably only the disciples could see this miracle taking place. And you can imagine when the first basket goes out and somebody says, well, who brought that basket? I didn't even see him carrying anything. 
And then another basket goes out. It's full to the brim with, with what they need. And then the first basket goes back and comes back again. And pretty soon they get the idea there's something going on in that circle of men. There's something miraculous that Christ is doing. And you know what they learned there? They learned about His wherewithal to meet our needs. They learned that He doesn't have to have human, rational ways of operating. Again, God's not the enemy of rationale and logic. He created us with thinking minds, most of us at least. And, and he's, not, he's not diametrically opposed to that. He's not against it. He's not offended by people using their minds. But here, what they learned was, even when they couldn't see a way, Christ had a way. And we come to it at the end, and, I, and I'm sort of getting ahead of my message, but the Bible does say in verse 20, they did all eat and were filled, and they took up of the fragments that remained 12 baskets full. Philip says, Lord, you don't have enough to feed them. The Lord's reply is, I got more than enough to feed them. Do you have the faith to trust me? The fact is, he's got more than enough to meet your needs. The question is not, does he have the wherewithal? It's, do you have the faith? Will you trust him and give him the opportunity to meet a need in your life? So often we immediately, I guess it's probably faithlessness in my life, and I don't know about your life, but so often when a need arises, we immediately go into fix mode. I gotta fix it. I gotta have a plan. I gotta have a solution. I'm the type of person, I loathe the vacuum of having no plan. I hate it. I don't, yeah, I'd rather have a bad plan than no plan. If you don't believe that's true, well, I, I, I love to have a plan, a process. I, I'm, I'm that type of person. I like to have a direction. I like to know what we're going to do. And often in my life when a need arises, I immediately go into fixed mode. What are we going to do? How are we going to figure it out? How, what money are we going to set aside? How, how are we going to do this? How are we going to? Uh, what do I need to do to fill this need into me? And I wonder how many needs that I have cobbled together a solution for and passed over the elegant, beautiful, Christ-honoring solution that God had. <laughs> wonder how many times that I, that, 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 that I have forced my will in a matter instead of giving God enough time to answer and to do it in a perfect way. They learned this, that he had the wherewithal to meet their needs. And then verse 20 says, They did all eat and were filled, and they took up of the fragments that remained twelve baskets full. And they that had eaten were about 5,000 men beside women and children. The miracle here, I say this tongue-in-cheek, is not that they had 12 baskets full left over. It's that they had only 12 baskets full left over. Think about the fact that he feeds 20,000 people and the only scraps he's got left over are 12 baskets. Some of our camp workers could, could give some witness to this. When you're cooking for a crowd... <laughs> How easy is it to overbuy versus underbuy? And it's amazing to me. And these 12 baskets have significance. It bears out dispensationally some things about, about Israel and the gospel and, and meeting the true need of Israel as a nation. Each of the baskets are reflective of, of, of not only the 12 tribes, but the apostles. And there's a lot of things going on in this passage. But just in a practical sense, what's remarkable to me is that he had just enough to feed them and over that amount, he had just enough that each disciple carried a basket. So what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying this. You know what they learned? His wisdom in meeting their needs. They learned that he knew exactly what they needed. He knew when they needed it. He knew how they needed it. He met their need exactly the way it should have been met. Let me just tell you this, and I'm done tonight. His ways are perfect. 
you can trust Him that when He meets our needs, He will do it in the exact way that gives Him glory and that's for our good. So here's what I'm asking of you tonight. You need not depart. Don't walk away from the Lord. Don't quit trusting Him. Don't quit following Him. Don't quit, don't quit having fellowship with Him. Instead, you stay close to Him. I know the devil and the world and your flesh is telling you, you got to choose. You're going to have to give up on God, quit trusting Him, quit walking with Him, quit living close to Him, quit following Him. You're going to have to just carve your own path. But the devil's a liar from the beginning. And, and here's the blessed words of the Savior. You need not depart. Stay close. Trust me. And watch me work in a way that you could have never fathomed. Let's pray together tonight as a musician comes to, to play. Father, I pray that you bless this invitation. I pray that your people get help, get encouragement, get strength from you tonight. I pray that serious business would be done in our lives. Shore up our faith, Lord, and keep us close to you as we seek and desire to see your will done in us. Lord, we love you. We ask it in Christ's name.